Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. Hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today we have a special guest, and and I am excited about this author. I say that about every author, but I think you guys will really enjoy um, our author today because he's going to share two special things with us. Um, His name is Philip Kinney, and he is um, on the air. So Philip, say hi to the listeners. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. Awesome. So, Philip, I usually start out the podcast with a few general questions so that listeners can get to know you a little bit. Um, first, what state in the Northwest are you living in? I'm in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I think you're in one of my favorite cities in the whole Northwest, the PDX Portland area. Woohoo! <laughs> yep, I'm in Northeast Portland, and um, it's one of my favorite places in the Northwest, too, although there's so many. It's Hard um, to really yeah. rank them. It's true, but we don't let everybody listening to this think that we love the Northwest because we get a lot of people moving here. <laughs> <laughs> but the one fact about the Northwest, about Portland, that listeners may not know that um, I love about it is that besides it's very, they like the claim, you know, keep Portland weird. But the airport in Portland, PDX Airport, International Airport, has been voted best airport in um, the United States, I think, six years in a row. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. You know, it's all for the carpet. They have the best oh, carpet yeah. in the world. Yeah. And the no, it's, a, it's true. It's a, it's a gem of an airport. Oh, it's Especially fantastic. if you travel much and see some of the other ones. So, oh, it's true. It's yeah, true. It's very, very welcoming. It is. It's wonderful. So we, we used to go out at SeaTac uh, a lot when my husband and I lived up north to travel. And when we had the opportunity to move back closer to the Portland International Airport, I was thrilled because I travel at least once or twice a year for work. And the idea of going back to PDX, I was just excited because I know it well. I love that airport. So (laughs) little tidbit y'all for for PDX plug. (laughs) (laughs) So, so so Philip, um, also, I like to ask authors right out of the bat. This is a stumper question that I didn't send you ahead of time because I like the reaction out, out of it. But um, share with the listeners and hopefully your future readers that are listening from this podcast, um, one tidbit, one information, one little bit about yourself you'd like to have um, everybody know about you that they might not be able to find in interviews or, or um, read or listen to from other interviews. Well, I I don't want to take the spontaneity out of it, but I did a cheat and I listened to other podcasts. <laughs> I love so. it. <laughs> well researched author. <laughs> I must confess, I'm That's okay. ready for this. Oh, good. But uh, I would have said the same thing anyway, if had I not looked really. But I, I'd like people to know that I consider myself a, a very unlikely writer. Oh. In that I didn't begin writing until I was forty-five. Oh, you're my inspiration. Yeah. I love this. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't begin. And that was a, a very weird story in itself. I don't know if you want me to go into it. Would you but, share uh, it? Because I'm in that age group too. So just so everybody knows, uh, I'm just going to be 46 in February. And I'm just starting uh-huh. out on my writing too. So uh, please share. Oh, great. Yes. <laughs> 
Well, I'm I'm about 69 now, so I've been at it a while. But um, at 45, I I was uh, nowhere near writing, uh, even though I had a graduated from college with a degree in literature. But um, I turned in, I became a psychotherapist, and mm-hmm. was quite happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at 45 in the early 90s, there was a, a, a rage going on in the country about the the emergence of Prozac. Oh, yes, and, I remember that. Um, mm-hmm. The treatment of depression. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it had a, there's been a long lineage of depression in my family, in the men in my family, and I I'd uh, had my share of it. So I, I thought I'd do an experiment uh, as a therapist to see what my patients were experiencing, but also the hidden agenda was to see if it would cure me. Mm. And so I, <laughs> I took love it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't cure me. But uh, in fact, I, I didn't like it at all. It felt mm-hmm. uh, uh, in some ways worse because for mm-hmm. some people, it's very good. For others, it kind of flatlines you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I stopped taking it after eight weeks. And um, now we know that you, you should uh, titrate that. But I just cold turkey. Mm-hmm. And the next mm-hmm. three weeks, the next three weeks were amongst the worst of my life. I felt mm-hmm. you know, t- terrible depression and despair. Three weeks into it, I woke up on a Saturday morning, a beautiful Saturday morning with a big old anxiety attack in my belly. Mm. But here's, here's the thing. I tagged somehow to the um, anxiety attack was a poem, a 20-line poem completely written out. And uh, luckily, I had the wherewithal to write it down in my notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started me off. I love it. I uh, love it. <laughs> I do. So writing to me to this day uh, feels a bit like a miracle. And I don't use that word lightly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, shortly thereafter, I ran into William Stafford, a great poet from Portland, and mm-hmm, learned mm-hmm. a few tidbits from him. And I just started writing poems every day, as he suggested. I wrote for Poem a Day for 10 years. And oh, uh, here you go. I have heard about William so, Stafford. It's never too late. I'll just say this to your listeners. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's never too late. You know, okay, so two major things. First, you're re-inspiring me because like I said, I'm I'm going to my 46th birthday. I too had an experience with Prozac after my first daughter was born in the early late 90s, you know, went through yeah. postpartum depression and you know, they they offered Prozac. And, you know, of course, you're going to buy it. You have a baby you got to take care of and had the very similar horrible experience with it and did go off cold turkey as well, which is my only experience of that kind of drug and then removal from drug without assistance. Miserable. And I remember struggling a lot after. And then my second baby came 22 months later. So I struggled a lot as an early um, mother with depression and anxiety. And the one thing that did really help me too, that not a lot of people know about when I would put my girls to bed at nap time, I would draw and I'm a horrible artist, very, very bad artist, Um, but but I would draw and I wrote a child's book, a, a literary, um, alphabet book while my kids were asleep yeah. and that really helped me never dawned on me yeah. until now that that is a part of the artist process that it was saving yeah. me, you know from all of the depression and anxiety as a new mom and so if you um it's so fascinating is it because if you go into the new york times today they have a they have a weekly uh 
um, edition of the best stories of the week, good stories. Mm -hmm. And there's a story of a man who was falsely accused of murder in New York. He was Mm -hmm. um, sentenced to, I think, 27 years or life in prison, something. He got... he got he got a, a team of graduate students came upon his case, um, and um, years later, and researched it and presented evidence to uh, get him freed and acquitted. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, how he made it through prison? He drew every day. I love and it. And of all things, he drew golf courses. He has oh. these intricate. Design, uh, drawings of golf courses, but it kept him sane. I and it kept him really, I would say, which I say a lot in my book, that just kept him connected to the, his inner being, which I call mm-hmm. the, the inner, the, the inner uh, source of creativity, the inner mm-hmm. source of being. And mm-hmm. kept him sane. So there you go. You, yeah. You've, you did the similar thing. Yeah, I'm a I'm a very big believer, and I've talked about this with other authors on the podcast. I had an author um, on who's so we're recording this now in October. He came out in April, and he um, suffered. He writes through his anxiety, depression, and um, mental health, and we talked a lot about how writing does save us in our mental health. And we're going to go a little more deeper with you on that because that's one of your subjects of one of your books. And so, um, so like I told you listeners, this is going to be a different podcast, but I think it's going to be an inspiring treat for all of us, regardless if you're an author or if you're an artist, a songwriter, a singer, or, or you are dabbling in the idea that you're creative somehow and you feel that creativity in you. Um, hopefully this this um, podcast will inspire you to embrace that creativity and live through it because it is a powerful, powerful healing tool. So, um, so let's get back to the two titles that you have that we're going to talk about. The first one I believe is radiance and it was a novel, correct, Philip? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then, and then when I turned, uh, well, I'll tell you about that later. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, and we'll go. We'll go back to, and then the other one that we're going to talk about, which I feel like is such a treat. I get two really great topics on this podcast. Is the Writer's Crucible, and it is um, Philip's latest book that has come out about meditation and the emotional well-being and of creative individuals. So he's going to share with us some great information about how to balance our creative life. I believe so. <laughs> So, so Philip, let's start out with Radiance. Is it self-published? Because we do a lot of talking about publishing on this podcast. So is it self-published, independent-published, or um, tell us the journey of publishing with that one first. Yeah, it's uh, self-published. At the time, you know, I was new to all this, and Mm -hmm. I I published it through CreateSpace. So uh, I wouldn't do that again, but I did this one. I was... Huh. I was like a lot of first-time writers. I was impatient, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't. I did uh, try finding an agent and a, or a, and a publisher for six months, but mm-hmm. then I um, I went to a talk one evening uh, for the Willamette Writers Monthly mm-hmm. Meeting. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with Willamette Writers? Oh yes, yeah. many of my authors will uh, suggest Willamette <laughs> Writers. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, uh, great bunch of people. And yeah. anyway, this was they brought in a pretty well-known agent who'd been doing it for 25 years, and she mm-hmm. said, "Well, you know, truly, for most people, self-publishing may be the way because even if you find a publisher, 
you may not recognize your book when you, they get done with it, and it would, could take a couple of years to get mm-hmm. um, you know published. So you know, when I heard that, I said, "Well, that's enough," because you know, I didn't, I don't have much time. I have full time psychotherapy practice. Mm-hmm. I have two teenage boys at the mm-hmm. time, and mm-hmm. my wife had a mysterious illness. So, so I just went and did it through Create Space. And but I have to tell you, I. I thoroughly enjoyed the process. I designed the cover of the book and mm-hmm. things like that. And I found that very interesting and engaging. So you said you wouldn't do it again. And a lot of my, I do have a lot of self-publishing authors. And I was just talking about this with my writer's group. So my writer group met at my house last night. We were we were talking a lot about publishing. And quite a few of them are self-publishers. And um and so I'm curious, why do you say you wouldn't do it through Create Space now? Because that may be a little bit of good information for somebody like myself who is not published yet and working my way through the idea of where I'm or how I'm going to publish from your experience. Well, I hope I don't get you or myself in trouble here. Oh, but, please, I mean, it's I okay. You, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody I gets in trouble here. here. That, <laughs> that's good. I told you earlier that I'm boycotting Facebook. Yes. And, you know, um, I'm also boycotting uh, Amazon. So yeah, Create Space is owned by Amazon. Yeah, yeah. I actually think Create Space may have, they may have stopped Create Space. I heard a rumor of that, mm-hmm. but... Uh, so, and there, I found a wonderful um, local self-publisher for oh. the Writer's Crucible, a, okay. a, an outfit called Inkwater Press. Okay. And they're terrific. Oh, and, I like uh, that. thoroughly <laughs> professional. Yeah. So I'll give them a little plug. Inkwater awesome. Press. They're really good. Well, we'll put their, we'll find yeah. their website and get it on show notes as well, because that might be something interesting good. for local Northwest authors to take a look at. And that's one part of my process for this podcast, yes. is not, you know, to really get resources out there for individuals like myself that are really trying yeah. to decide what to do. So we'll make sure that their, their um, website, Philip, is on the show notes. Good. So, <laughs> okay. Good, good. So, yeah, so they're good. Talk- Tell us a little bit about the process with them. Um, do they do editing? Um, do they do the cover design? Kind of, you know, how does it work with them so that people that might be interested walk us through that process with working with them? Yeah, they do everything. I um, actually had my own editor before I decided on Inkwater. I had taken it, had two or three uh, run-throughs. Might as well give out another plug. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Indigo, Indigo Editing, uh, I-N-D-E-G-I-O. They're really great. Ali Shaw is ahead of it, and okay. I highly recommend them. So I had edited myself, but then once I chose Inkwater, uh, they do the interior design. They do the cover design. They're really a full-service uh publisher they'll do uh, publicity oh nice and uh marketing um and uh yeah so but their design team is i think terrific i'm mm-hmm. very happy and i've referred several people to them and they've been equally happy with their cover work well i love it and uh sharing honestly because this is the number one question that i am trying to help address but even my off writers group were talking about it and i'm starting a workshops in our local public library that will be done yeah. in January around the publishing industry and what to do. So it's really great to have some yeah. resources of people that have gone through and they're happy with. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's and, good. It's very professional and great, great. And it's Indigo. It. The Indigo was the editing process. The editors, correct? Yes. Uh huh. So, yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. fantastic. Well, listeners, I'll make sure both of those links are on um, the show notes. So if you're interested, yeah. take a look at them because there's nothing better than a great um, re a great review from two things like this because most people don't know where to go for an editor to find an editor or can you i i've heard such horror stories so it's fantastic yeah, i know yeah these these are both uh five star mm-hmm. organizations okay. yeah right in your backyard i love it i love it well i need to get in contact with them myself maybe i'll bring a couple of their people on the podcast and they can talk to us aspiring authors that would be fun <laughs> Oh, they would love that. Yeah, oh. Ali Shaw's the executive director of the owner, I guess, of the uh, Indigo. She's terrific. Yeah, okay, that'd be good. Well, I'll I'll hit her up. <laughs> I'll say you sent me. Okay. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I love do. networking. Um, okay, so well, let's get a little bit into um, the two books and story, the stories from. Um, Radiance and tell us a little bit about that. So what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have you set that up and then let's just go ahead and launch into the reading because I want to give us enough time to also go into the writer's crucible so that you can share with us your insights as you know a therapist. Yeah. Your insights are so valuable for us artists and writers. <laughs> okay, I hope so. Um so Radiance, you know, is another interesting story, just as a preface that I, when I turned 60, I made a short list of things I was convinced I could not do. Interesting. And uh, first on the list was playing the piano, and second was writing a novel. Oh. I was right about the first one. I can't <laughs> play the piano. <laughs> That's my left awesome. hand is barely connected to my neurology. <laughs> 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 but I was wrong about the second one. Mm-hmm. And I owe this to my wife. And this is a tip for readers, beginning readers who are who think they don't have enough time. Because I mm-hmm. thought, well, I can't do this. I, I don't have enough time. I have a dog to take care of. I have two teenage boys. I have this big business. And uh, anyway, um, she said, oh, come on, just start and just do right for 20-minute blocks. If you have 20 minutes, I said, wow. oh, I'll never get anything done. But I tried it, and by golly, it worked. And uh, so I owe so much to her. I don't know if I'd be writing at all for her. So you can put her on the... Okay. On the... We we give out shout-outs to our partners, I tell you what, because if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you will at least hear one time in each one where I give a shout-out to my own husband because every single time yeah. I feel like I'm not a writer, I don't know what I'm doing, or I haven't written. Yeah. For months on end, he will look at me. So there's two things he'll know. If I haven't gone and exercised enough in the week, or if I haven't written or been creative in writing in the week because I'm, yep. I'm not happy Good. person. And so he always has been the one to spur me on. You need to write. You need to write. So thank goodness for our yeah, partners. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yes. Yeah, Isn't so that great? Because we can get lost in our own heads and Mm-hmm. Like I'll talk about with the writer's crucible, we can get lost in self-doubt. Oh, yes. Get lost in, uh, you know, the narrative that we're not good enough. And, mm-hmm. and really those, I, I maintain, are the bigger problems. They're, they are. They're, they're getting in the way of writers um, and any creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. It's not so much about talent or discipline. It's more about some of these narr- internal narratives and emotional um, constrictions that mm-hmm. get in the way. Mm-hmm. 
So we can come back to that. We but, will um, because we'll we definitely have some discussion on that questions and you know yeah. about that. So so let's go wrap back so, around. Radiance. Radiance was your novel that yeah. you wrote as your challenge to yeah. yourself at sixty. Is that how it worked out? Yeah. How <laughs> oh, wonderful! Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> That's awesome. So and, uh, uh, you know, it was a pivotal time in my life. Uh, the, the novel's semi autobiographical, but. It's also, you know, a cultural uh, a study of the times that I grew up in in the 60s, 70s, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it starts, it starts basically tracing a family from um, you know, the Depression era mm-hmm. uh, through the the uh, current day, and um, it examines really the the. The terrible uh, suffering that um, that the people of the Depression era and then World War II went through, and then how that um, impacted, and some of those things were, for better and worse, uh, transmitted to the next generation. Oh, fascinating! So it, 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 and then it um, tie it very much is, is a study in the the problems of memory, mm-hmm. especially emotional memory, mm-hmm. and that links into the the current. Um, conflict with the protagonist who has taken care of his mother who is dying of Alzheimer's. Mm. So those memory issues are are linked and played with throughout the book. What an absolutely powerful um, storyline. I love the examination of our past through story and, you know, finding out reasons why maybe individuals operate operated the way they did as adults based on their past history as children. And so, you know, the events around them, their environment, all that, that's just absolutely fascinating. So let's, let's set it up because I'm dying to hear it. I'm going to go quiet and let you do some reading for Radiance so that our listeners can get hooked in on it. (laughs) Can I, uh, I set it up with one more. Can I just set it up a little bit? Mm -hmm. First of all, I hope your listeners are versed in, uh, in uh, 20th century comic strips, because this first part I'm going to read, there's a few quirky parts in this book, but this first part is, um, is a, takes from the comic strip Blondie. Oh, Blondie, particularly I love Blondie. The, <laughs> the, <laughs> particularly the character of Dagwood Bumstead, who yeah. is sort of this man-child, his life is, the best of his life is organized around napping and bowling and eating. I love it. I love it. Fantastic. And then it switches, the book switches a lot through time zones, and then it switches from what I'm going to read from Dagwood Bumstead to a scene in um, the the, um, 1930s at the table of the the father of uh, the protagonist in the book. His name is Gerald, and he is with his father, and they're sitting eating uh, shortly, about five months or six months after the death of Gerald, or of the um, yes, of Gerald's mother. Mm-hmm. So fantastic! That's what it sets you up. I love it. And yeah. this, I'm going to do one quick thing. So listeners, if you don't know the comic strip Blondie, I believe you can find it online. So Google it while you're listening. You can. You can. And check yeah. it out because it's, it is really hysterical. Um, <laughs> we don't, we don't see comics like this anymore. So look at it. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go quiet and let you read. Okay. It's about eight worth, minutes worth. Perfect. This is uh 
from a chapter in the book entitled Food and Hunger. It is a few minutes before midnight when Dagwood Bumstead lifts his blankets and ever so quietly slips from bed. Blondie is sleeping on her side with her back to the room and is undisturbed by Dagwood's movements. He tiptoes to the door. The dog watches his furtive gait and follows to the head of the stairway where Dagwood pauses, now confident his departure has gone undetected. A gleam that stretches from ear to ear lights up the hallway, and the two merry companions scamper down the stairs. When we next see Dagwood, he is seated at the kitchen table admiring a skyscraper sandwich, at least a foot tall, and layered with every imaginable leftover a refrigerator can hold. It is a thing of beauty, bulging with tomatoes and beef, pickles and cold cuts. Lettuce and bologna, mayonnaise and mustard are spilling out from between 10 stories of fresh bread, and the whole thing is crafted with enough care and skill to rival the Empire State Building. And in his moment of triumph, before he takes that first impossible bite, Dagwood Bumstead pauses and looks us in the eye. The gleam has doubled. The master of the nap is glowing like a three-year-old who has found his blanket. Though he has been secretive until now, he does not feel caught. A puppy feels more shame than Dagwood. He can look at us with unabashed delight because he knows we understand and share in his exuberant victory. He can look at us without a trace of self-consciousness and proclaim for every white American man, I have it all. His is a triumph over hunger, the defeat of longing. He can eat when he wants, as much as he wants. There in the privacy of his kitchen, it is all in his hands, and nothing can take it away. Not the list of jobs Blondie will have for him in the morning, not the demeaning blows Mr. Dithers will pummel him with on Monday. He is alone with his catch ready to devour every last crumb, ready to fill his stomach to its maximum capacity. His jaws will unhinge like a snake's to take in the towering meal. And his mouth, the happiest part of his body, the home of his voracious appetite, will explode with sensations so exhilarating as to satisfy every molecule of his desire. He will eat until the plate is empty. He will lick his lips and sigh. The dog will look at him and smile after scarfing up the last of the droppings. When he has finished, Dagwood Bumstead will walk the stairs to his bedroom. He will tuck himself in beside his unsuspecting wife, roll over on his side, smile, and sleep like a baby. Content with a full belly, and the knowledge that he lives in a land of plenty. At another table in another land, Gerald stares at his dinner plate. He stares at the boiled potatoes and the scrap of dry meat. The bread in his mouth is hard, and the chewing required to break it down tires him. He gives up and pushes his chair away from the table. Why aren't you eating? Warren's first words of the night sound like a dog barking at a stranger. 
Gerald says nothing. Answer me. The dog begins to snarl. Not hungry. Eat your damn food. Do you know what it costs me to get that meat? Do you know what I have to do to feed you? Digging those damn ditches every day during a couple of goddamn dollars, and then you won't even eat the goddamn food on your plate. It's January of 1937. Food is still hard to come by. Times remain bleak. In the small farm towns of northern Indiana, Ruth has been gone for six months, and Gerald's stomach is sick with loneliness for his mother. I told you I'm not hungry. You're never hungry. Look at how skinny you are. How can you play basketball when you won't eat? I could play all right. You just sit around moping, feeling sorry for yourself. That won't get you anywhere, and it won't bring your mother back either. It was the first mention of Ruth and her passing since the heat of August. The space between them cringed. Memory of the terrible summer heat must have come back to Warren in that instant. He must have smelled the sweat and the torment of his three sons. It was unbearable then and now, and so he shot back at Gerald. You stink. Go take a bath. What? They said you stink. You smell terrible. Take a bath. There's no hot water. Besides, who are you to talk? You smell like crap every night after that lousy job digging ditches and crawling around in sewers all day. You take a damn bath. Harold pushes away from the table and is out the door, headed to his room, as his father hurls curses at his back from the table. Gerald doesn't stop, and he doesn't hear tonight what he has heard so many other nights. He only hears his father's shouts fade into the wallpaper and his own contempt muffled in his throat. I hate him. Gerald is determined to deny his father the satisfaction of his anger. He slams the door to his room and sprawls on the narrow bed in the corner. The room is cold. Mold is growing on the walls. Six months have passed since the sun died. They are living in a boarding house on the edge of town. Edgar and Earl live with their wives on the other side of Wheeler. Gerald is alone with Warren. That bastard, I hate him. He punches the pillow and repeats again and again what is by now less of a feeling and more a fact, a permanent installation. I hate this goddamn house, this stupid town, that worthless asshole. But most of all, he hated nightfall. And being, a, and being alone in that room, when the emotions of the dreaded life come out like rats in a garbage dump, when the mold on the wall seems to grow on the back of his throat. And worst of all, there is the moment of wait, torment of waiting, waiting that is unbearable, waiting for Ruth to come back, waiting to escape this rotten place, and waiting for the heaviness sitting on his chest to vanish. There you have it. Oh, Philip, absolutely amazing brilliant and emotional so thank you for sharing that part of the story with us and listeners i hope you were drawn in and um, feel the same emotion i feel as i'm listening so it's beautifully written thank you philip thank you thank you for sharing you're welcome so i didn't expect to get emotional i wrote that no. five years ago and oh, haven't read it much lately but i think it's, when i was rehearsing i didn't get emotional but but i think it's about a, having an audience 
it's a power, the emotions of that power, the power of those emotions that living through it as you read it is very real for many of us. <laughs> and so yeah. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, so let's shift a little bit because um, because of your background in um, psychotherapy, um, you have a really unique aspect of sharing in your new work, The Writer Crucible, about um, the emotions and um, how to deal being with a creative, being a creative being as a writer or an artist, um, the ups and downs. We talk a lot about it. Um, us authors will talk a lot about it when we're alone, when we're not on the podcast of the ups and downs, yeah. <laughs> the depression, yeah. the self-doubt. Well, that's good. I hope I'm glad to hear that. Cause I think uh, one of the worst things and one of the say, things I say in here a lot is, uh, is uh, the real problem is when people get isolated. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're doing a good thing by, even if people just talk about it, mm -hmm. it helps uh, undo some of the constriction mm -hmm. and it, it helps normalize it. Um, mm -hmm. Cause one of the things I say a, a lot is, you know, we, we all struggle with this problem of, of uh, insecurity and uh, self doubt. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this and then it's you know it's easy for the mind to turn on us and and uh, think well something must be wrong with me but really nothing's wrong with you it's just it's just part of the territory mm -hmm. this is utterly normal every creative person feels it even the great ones I mm -hmm. my favorite line in the book is from uh, it's not my own but it's from Flannery O'Connor and she writes uh, um, write a novel is a terrible experience in which the hair often falls out and the teeth decay. <laughs> That's so funny. I had a dream last night that my hair was falling out again. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes, I am. Because I, I suffered from moments of alpesia and I had an author come on and she did a, a whole thing about alpesia with her book that she has. And last night. Oh, we, I saw that. Yeah. yeah we I were talking that. We were talking about the inner critic in my writer's group last night, and, and we're working through um, learning how to embrace the writer's critic in the sense of um, where it's trying to protect us maybe from when we were children, that writers, the inner critic might be trying to hold us back from sharing information that we feel deemed as maybe um, hurtful as a child. But yeah. now as adults, right. as you start writing, you still hear those words in the back of your mind, don't write that, don't write that. And so we did a little yeah. bit of discussion about that. And then last night I had Good. a dream that my hair was falling out. And I woke up this morning, I'm like, huh. <laughs> My hair only falls out during extreme stress. <laughs> so what's going on? <laughs> you and, see, you're in good company with Flannery yes. O'Connor. I'm in great vision. company. My hair is not falling out, everybody, just so you know. My hairdresser, Sarah, it's still all intact. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just a very funny dream. And then you bring that up. How interesting. So... So, that's good. Yeah. So we were in tune. Even. I, we must have been. I, I believe in that. So a part of me doing research on you is that how you, how you discuss how um, the psychology and spirituality in your mind are very much um, not separate. They're two pieces together. You know, they're very much intertwined. And um, do you go into that in the writer's crucible as far as how we can use meditation 
and um, kind of share with us the the premise of the writer's crucible because I have a lot of authors that listen to this podcast will probably want this book. <laughs> I know I want it. Well, good. Um, and I listened good. to your interview with Sarah Warren, um, who is one of my favorite right now podcasts. is one of my favorites. So I thought, oh yeah, she's terrific. Great, you're on there. Very excited. Um, so tell us, kind of give us the premise of what this book set that up for us, and then share with us if you want. Um, so a tip or two, you know, so we have something to go away with. And then I'm going to have you do a little bit of reading on that too, because I really think there's plenty of creatives out there that would love to, to know about what this book is about. Yes. Um, it'll make more sense when I read what I'm going to read, but... Um, we'll do it. Do it. Let's do it know, that way. We can change it up. There's, um, <laughs> there's um, one of the things, that if you buy the book... You'll find that uh, in every chapter, I believe, just about every chapter, there are, there aren't exactly sidebars, but there are little uh, experiments, I call them. And there are many um, meditation um, exercises. Oh, nice. Uh, different, so there's different meditation exercises. There's some self-exploration exercises. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a there's a bounty of um, different ways to try to connect with what I call the creative impulse, the creative mm-hmm. source, which mm-hmm. I see as a spiritual mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. I see creativity as a spiritual thing. In fact, mm-hmm. the, really the the, the um, thesis of the book is that there is no separation between psychology, creativity and spirituality, that those are different faces or different aspects of one remarkable force that's pulsing through all of us. Hmm. So, you know, while, while the insecurities that we, um, and self-doubt that we experience is normal, it can also be aggravated by uh, historical pain and hurt and events in our lives that, that augment and inflame certain um, emotional responses and leave us with uh, emotional vulnerabilities. So this book is really a study of the emotional vulnerabilities that get in the way of our writing. Because really the first task of good writing, in my opinion, is to get out of the way. And uh, so it's sometimes hard to... um, get out of our own way and, and really listen to the creative muse and um, write from our uh, instincts. And so, um, uh, and one of the things that helps with that is meditation where you can learn a, to um, not grant the self-talk that can rampage through your brain so much reality and authority. And you can um, also connect to the peaceful inner place that is also the source of creativity, in my opinion. And listen, I have many, many, many great ideas for writing, and I don't think I would have come up with otherwise that um, uh, happen in meditation. So in many ways, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and try too hard, I think, to make it work and to be clever and to think up great things. but. And often, I think, um, and William Stafford taught me this, you know, writing is more about listening and being found, mm-hmm. really being found by the unbidden, by the creative uh, spark. So, I love it. 
I love it. So does that give you a oh, overview? It's, it's absolutely brilliant. And I am definitely going to get a purchase your book because it's something I'm working through this year is really being my terminology for it right now is being mindful. Um, and that's, yeah. you know, a big buzzword right now, right? Mindfulness. Yeah, it is. But um, I'm working on it in, in my writing life, as well as in my own personal health life. Of being exactly. Mindful, um, being mindful. And that's what I love yeah. because then it becomes seamless. It's mm-hmm. not like you have a writing life here and a spiritual mm-hmm. life there. They're all really one. Mm-hmm. It, it can be seamless. And, mm-hmm. uh, and really I think help. you're, you're happier if it is seamless. I feel like that's right. I, I hate even to use the word happier or happiness because it it just is such a thrown around word, and everybody wants to be happy, right. We all desire happiness, but I guess yeah. I can say the word for me that I found when I'm very mindful of my spirituality and tying in my health, my food, and being mindful about you know finding the time and space to like you said listen that's a hard thing for me to do is to listen to meditate and listen i'm very active yeah. so sitting and yeah. listening is a challenge always has been my parents will tell you this that i don't listen well and um, <laughs> but i'm learning this and um the wonderful thing is that there's a peace that comes when you start having these pieces come together in your life you actually yep. Don't react to the world or to others around you the same way. Um, and yeah. people notice that. So I love this discussion. Um, I hope that this inspires others that may be struggling with, you know, all those little pieces of life and creativity and health and well-being and bringing them together under, you know, a thoughtful mindfulness. So wonderful. I'm glad that you wrote this book. So what would you like to share with us out of it? <laughs> Yeah, oh, should I read a little? Yes. I can read a little. From yes, the please do. Yes, absolutely. I'm hooked. I want to hear. <laughs> could, I, could I give a final plug? You here? absolutely can plug as if, much as you wish. <laughs> if, you, if you or others want to buy The Writer's Crucible, uh, if you must, you could go through Amazon. But if you're like me and you treasure independent bookstores, mm, uh, I would invite you to... It's because they're an endangered species. Mm-hmm. I would invite you to uh, order the book through Broadway Books in Broadway Portland. Books? Fantastic, all right. Broadway, yeah. Broadway Books. It's uh, you can go on their website and find my book, or you can call them at two eight four five zero three two eight four one seven two six, and they will mail you a copy. Fantastic. I'll make sure that is so awesome. I'll make sure that's all in show notes too for my listeners. Um, one thing a lot of the oh, listeners, a lot of things that listeners don't know as a, um, I feel like giving back to community. And so as I bring authors on these podcasts, I also created a small Facebook group just for the authors that are featured. And I invite also connections with um, small um, bookstores in there as well. So the writers can get connected with bookstores. So um, I think that's awesome. That you're already working with a bookstore in the area, a smaller one in Portland. Fantastic. I'm going to go connect with them too, so that we can bring them into that, that group as well. <laughs> so they are, they are terrific. And they're, a, they're such champions of writers, both I love it. established and well-known and emerging writers. So it's, it's a, oh, well, great we'll people. Definitely connect with them. You know, I, I've been thinking Good. about this year, this is kind of rabbit trailing. Sorry, listeners. I've been, I'm going on getting ready for the first year of 
podcast recordings. So a lot of people don't know I do the recordings and then I schedule them out. So we're getting close to the year mark for me is that. And I, I'm thinking about what else we can do. Maybe bringing some bookstore owners, owners on the podcast would be a fun experience and they can talk Oh, wouldn't about, that be good? Yeah. That would they're be terrific. Yeah. Thank you for the idea. Well, <laughs> Sally and... Sally and Kim at Broadway Books are okay. Well, I will like, once the, again. The real thing. I will let them know that you sent me. <laughs> oh, do yes, yeah, it's good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, fantastic. Okay. So I'll make sure that's all in show notes so that listeners can connect with Broadway Books as well. Okay. Super. Thank you. You bet. Much you bet. You bet. So let's set us up for the reading. You're going to share with us a section of the writer's crucible and I will definitely go quiet. So the dogs aren't barking during it and get, I'm going to <laughs> my quiet listening mode. Okay. It's very good for me to practice. <laughs> good. Perfect. You can meditate and then take it in. Yes. Okay. Ready to go. Uh, I'm going to read from pr- the prologue which is uh, entitled, A Short Story. Should you explore the mystical tradition of 13th and 14th century Persia, you would find great poets like Rumi, Hafiz, and many other masters of word and space. If you enter those circles, you will soon hear of a character named Nasruddin, who is dear to the hearts of all who know him. Nasruddin is the adorable fool on the hill. You might think of him as the yogi bearer of Sufi storytelling. His mind-altering stories and aphorisms are legendary in revealing the folly of human striving and in opening the mind to understand the nature of its own waywardness. My favorite Nasruddin story as it relates to the writer's path is the following, which some call Nasruddin's bullseye. It goes something like this. Nasruddin walks into town one morning and notices an archer practicing at the far corner of the green. He approaches the targets and is astounded to see that every single shot has hit the center of the circle. Bullseye! Amazed by such skill, Nasruddin approaches the archer and asks, Good sir, how is it that you are able to make every arrow a perfect bullseye? The archer turns to Nasruddin and shares his secret. Well, you see, my friend, I take aim, pull the string, release, and draw a circle around the spot the arrow lands. Nothing to it. Take aim, writers, release, and circle what shows up on the page. Perfecto. You have to love it, right? Isn't this the foolproof protection against writer's block you've always wanted? What is worse than the dreaded block? Why, self-reproach, of course. How many times have you read over an hour's worth of work and proclaimed, well, that sucks. Never again. Cured. Just follow the wisdom of Nasruddin's bullseye. All will be well. Good? Ah, word so. Artists suffer and writers could be at the head of the pack when it comes to agonizing in solitude, dealing with helpless spells of infertility and hopelessness. Really, why write? Why face the emotional challenges lurking with the turn of every page? Why feel so vulnerable, exposed, 
and subject to repeated rejections. Why? Because it is amazing. <clears throat> because to dare to write is to venture into the territory Nobel laureate Toni Morrison calls the non-secular. What is this territory Morrison is talking about? I hope to hit the bullseye on that question because connecting to the non-secular is central to what this book offers as a means to help writers through the tough times. For now, let me say that the non-secular is that magical place that never sleeps, that mysterious impulse that wakes me at 3 a.m. with the answer to yesterday's writing problem. <clears throat> it is the home of the unbidden that beckons ever so quietly, but forcefully, with ideas, words, and sentences before birds begin to sing. Often it speaks when I am dashing off to work and must hastily grab a scrap of paper to scribble down the whisperings before they disappear. I think of these words as sacred, coming from a place that I know but can never touch, a place I feel is beloved and is more myself than am I, the non-secular. Finding this place, or being found, is so important because having a relationship with the non-secular, or what I think of as the creative source of being, is the ground that makes it possible to remember and connect with our basic goodness. The vulnerability that writers and artists face is far more complicated and tricky to relate to than most of us have recognized. Every writer knows the experience and from time to time faces the emotional quagmire of feeling not good enough. This may come in a, an assortment of ugly translations, such as, who am I kidding? I can't write. Or, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to be published. But they all end up in the same emotional box canyon whose reality can be summed up as, I'm not enough. And it is this emotional quagmire, not a lack of talent or discipline, that is the bane of writers, artists, and all those who ask of themselves to partake in creative endeavors. What feeds the disconnect and the emotional conviction that we are not enough is shame. This is a psychological and spiritual plague of our time. Dealing with shame and the accompanying conclusion that you are not good enough is the heart and soul of this book. The way through the field of shame is to fall in love with the presence of being that holds us just like we have fallen in love with making art. It is to know that we never have been and never could be anything other than exquisitely and intimately of that creative spirit. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Oh, oh my heaven. So my heart has been touched. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> I I I feel very much that this was needed for me. That one little bit of the writer's crucible was for me today. And hopefully for other listeners, <laughs> I will definitely be. Oh, thank you. That, <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you. <clears throat> Hope thank so. Thank you for sharing so much. And thank you for being here on the podcast. And, you know, I we live very close to each other. So maybe we'll see each other in conventions or meetings or we'll have you back if you do some more writing. <laughs> well, thanks. I'd love to come back and, and I'll bet you we will 
meet up one day. Awesome. Thanks, Phil, for being here. Thanks for having me, Vicki. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? Visit us at our website to learn more. You can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share the podcast with your friends. And most importantly, become a supporter. Supporters receive monthly bonus podcasts and a newsletter filled with tips from our authors. To find out more how to become a supporter, visit our website. And finally, I hope you always remember to enjoy the journey. Until next week, this is Vicki J. Carter saying goodbye.